Well, good evening and um, welcome back to the School of Theology. This uh, semester, uh, we're going to look, having looked last uh, fall at the person of Christ, uh, our focus throughout this uh, spring uh, will be on the work of Christ. So, we need, we need to think through how it is that we understand uh, what it is that Jesus did. Uh, if you were to watch a movie, say, and, and let me say uh, Second Commandment issues here notwithstanding, and I, I understand some of you may have misgivings about pictures of Jesus and so on, but, but putting that aside and thinking theologically for a minute, uh, if, if you saw a, a movie of a crucifixion, it, it does not in and of itself tell you what it is that crucifixion stands for. You can, you can respond to a picture of a crucifixion, a movie of a crucifixion in many ways. Uh, revulsion and its uh, brutality. You may conclude uh, that here is somebody who is receiving the just deserts of his sin, of his crime. And uh, the capital punishment is, uh, is exactly what is, uh, what is justified in this instance. It takes more than what is conveyed visually or audibly from the cross to come to an understanding that the cross is an act of substitution or that the cross is an act of the satisfaction of the justice of God in order to redeem sinners like you and me. Now what we have in the Gospels pretty much is a description of what occurred. Now there are some interpretive aspects of the crucifixion and Jesus of course has already told us the reason why he is dying but it'll take, it'll take Paul and Peter and John and others to enlarge and amplify for us the theological significance of the cross. So for Paul, for example, the cross is an act of redemption, paying the ransom price to set those who are in bondage free. Or the cross is an act of reconciliation, viewing the cross from a, almost a, a social uh, aspect of one being offended with another and, and the two needing to be brought back into fellowship, reconciling. When we look at that, we'll, we'll need to ask the question, who is being reconciled to who? Is, is, is the problem entirely on man's side or is, can we say, the problem on God's side? That it is, it is his holiness that is the obstacle to reconciliation and that needs to be satisfied. Now the New Testament will speak of uh, the work of Christ as an act of Propitiation, uh, a word that we don't use in our English language a great deal unless perhaps in legal speak and, and I'm speaking off the top of my head here but I'm not sure of a context in, the, in, in day-to-day uh, conversation where we would use the word propitiation but if you're using uh, say the ESV or the King James Version of the Bible you're going to come across that word propitiation. Well what does that word mean? Because it, it is a word that is employed to describe for us the work of Christ. Uh, there are broad categories by which we understand the work of Christ. Categories like obedience. That the whole of the, the, whole of the work of Christ was an act of obedience. He came as a servant to obey and to do the will of his heavenly father. That's a very broad concept by which to understand the cross. Words like reconciliation and propitiation and uh, redemption are more specific words to understand the cross. John seems to have uh, an emphasis on the work of Christ as 
as victory over the forces of darkness. So John has that famous statement, the reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he, he views the work of Christ in cosmic terms as a battle between, we might say, good and evil, between Jesus and Satan. Well, before we get to any of those, uh, which are points down the road and, and another point down the road that we must uh, examine because we are Presbyterians, uh, and, that is, and that is, for whom did Jesus die? Uh, and did he die for everybody or did he die for the elect? And if we answer in the, in the second way that he died for the elect only, we then have to ask what does that mean? And, and so we'll, we'll spend at least an evening uh, talking about uh, limited atonement, which is not a great term, uh, particular redemption, which is a better term, uh, the particularity of the work of Christ on behalf of his people. Well, that's an issue that's way down the road, uh, probably in April, before we get to that uh, point. Tonight, I want us to begin um, simply, and I say simply, but I, I want us to begin by contemplating together um, the sufferings of Christ and uh, we need an entry point here. We need, we need somewhere to, to enter into this discussion. And I've chosen as my entry point uh, uh, something that seems to be somewhat of an emphasis for the Apostle Paul as he thinks about the work of Jesus. What was the essential message of Paul? And there are a number of statements, and I've confined myself here to the Corinthian uh, uh, correspondence, uh, for example, uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a very important statement. It's a very, it's a very telling statement. That if you ask Paul, what is it that he preached? What, what is the emphasis of your message? What is it that you speak about more than anything else? And his answer is, Jesus... And him crucified. It is the crucified Jesus that is the focus of Paul's ministry. Uh, we noted, I think, last uh, fall, by way of an example, that Paul probably never refers to the virgin birth of Jesus. Uh, that's not to say that he didn't believe in the virgin birth, but he doesn't make a great deal of it in his writings. Whereas he makes a great deal of the death of Jesus. You, you, might, you might go to the epistles and, and um, conclude that one of the great emphases of the Apostle Paul was the resurrection. Uh, it was theologically extremely significant for Paul. You can't uh, read Romans 6, for example, without coming away uh, with the, with. The, a sense of the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus for the Apostle Paul. But here, significantly, he says that the central core of his preaching and teaching was the crucifixion of Jesus. That was, that was the core of it. He had many, many other things to say, but the core of it is the crucifixion. Then further on in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, and this is a passage uh, that we... Uh, uh, sight uh, every time we have the Lord's Supper there is a bread word this is my body which is for you uh, take eat this do in remembrance of me and then there's the cup word this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins all of you drink of it so that the focus of the Lord's Supper is the bloodshedding of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the, 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 the dying of Jesus that involves bloodshedding. Now, the Lord's Supper played a, an important and major and significant and prominent role in the life of the early church. Uh, and no matter how we view the answer to the question, how frequently was the Lord's Supper uh, celebrated in the early church, and the answer to that is probably weekly. Um, uh, and, and then as the church grew out of 
house churches and into something else, uh, uh, one sees one sees perhaps development in in the practice of some of these things. Development that that sometimes is necessitated by the larger size, but but. The Lord's Supper played a significant and central role in the life of the early church. And Paul is saying here that at the heart of the Lord's Supper is the crucifixion. And then in 1 Corinthians um, 15.3, and these are, uh, this, uh, there are two very significant verbs here that you may remember me alluding to back when we were talking about the doctrine of Scripture and the formation of the Bible. Uh, I delivered, paradidomi, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, paralambano. And those two verbs, uh, and forgive me for citing Greek here for a second, uh, but those two verbs are are significant for Paul because what he's saying to the Corinthians is, I didn't didn't tamper, I didn't mess with this at all, I didn't add to it, you know, Paul's an apostle, so he could add to it. By, by virtue of his, of his office as an apostle and as an organ uh, through which we get the scriptures and for that matter 1 Corinthians itself. But this is something that Paul simply received and he hands on. It's, it's something that was a core aspect of the early church that he simply, he simply handed it on. And it's a little testimony, this verse is just a little testimony to the, to the existence of something called oral tradition within the early church. You know, how, how, how were the sayings of Jesus, how were the doctrines of Jesus kept, say, from A.D. 33 to A.D. 53, 54, 55, which is when we get the Corinthian epistles. So you've got a period of over two decades when there's no New Testament scripture at all. So how, how, is, how is that tradition kept pure? And the answer is oral tradition. Like a, like a catechism. Once you learn it, you got it, you pass it on. It doesn't, it doesn't get changed. And Paul is saying, I delivered to you as of first importance with what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And notice the emphasis on first importance. As though Paul is saying that there are things of secondary importance. And there are things of tertiary importance, but there are things of first importance without which you don't have Christianity anymore. And, and among those things of first importance is that Jesus died in order to fulfill what Scripture had predicted as Scripture uh, in accordance with the Scriptures. And, and then, uh, first, uh, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 1.18. Uh, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And um, Paul is saying here there is a word uh, about the cross. Uh, there is a logos about the cross. Now, in Greek there are two words for word. One is rhema. Uh, some of you might know of, of Hramer churches, for example. There's a denomination called the Hramer denomination, uh, based on the distinction between Logos and Hramer. Uh, and uh, 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 one, is, one is a fact, and the other is an interpretation of that fact. Uh, and Paul is saying here that there is a Logos. There's more than just the fact of the cross, but there's actually an interpretation of the cross. There is a, a received understanding and meaning to the cross as to what it stands for uh, when Paul is uh, writing to the Corinthians. Now, all of that to say that the cross is central. The, the cross is central to Christianity. The sufferings of Jesus are central to Christianity. Now, let's think through the facts uh, and I, I, do want to, I do want to spell this out, and I, I don't want to become pedantic about it, but these are, 
I mean, you can dispute the facts in the sense that you dispute history itself, right? You can be postmodern and say, we can't know the past, so these are not facts, right? So I'm talking here within the Christian church. I'm not talking about out there in the world. All of these facts are disputed by the world out there because they have a postmodern view of history, of historiography, so that, so that they can't believe anything anymore. Um, and, and you can't be certain about anything. And, and if, if that's where you are, we've got another issue to deal with in apologetics to, to, to get to this point. But I'm, I'm sweeping all of that aside. I'm, I'm assuming you, 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 you believe the Bible to be the word of God. So there are certain facts. There are certain things that happen. And then, and then you need to ask yourself, what did those things actually mean? Why did they happen and why did they happen in the way that they happened? And that's an interpretation of the fact, which is what Paul is doing a great deal of. He doesn't spend... Paul doesn't spend a great deal of time, for example, or any time for that matter, describing what a crucifixion is. But he accepts that his readers know that Jesus was crucified. They don't have a postmodern view of history. They, they believe this to be a fact. It actually happened. Now, Paul wants to go on and explain what, cruci- what the crucifixion of Jesus means. What, what is it? So, we're, we're going back to, to basics. We're going to ground level. And I want us to look at the facts of Jesus' suffering. Now, bear in mind here uh, a biblical theme uh, in terms of what Paul said to the Corinthians that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus came to be the suffering servant. So the servant songs of Isaiah, I'm learning it, the servant songs of Isaiah and, and particularly the fourth servant song at the end of chapter 52 uh, all the way through to the end of chapter 53 are, uh, are an explanation and an anticipation of the fact that Messiah will be one who will suffer. Now, let's explore this a little more. First of all, that the whole life of Jesus was an act of suffering. Although Paul says... I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So although Paul has an emphasis on the crucifixion, for Paul, as we will see in a minute, the crucifixion is the culmination of a lifetime of suffering. Now, having said that, this is not a linear graph. The the crucifixion of Jesus is exponentially more suffering than anything that he knew during the course of his life. But we do need to see that he was born into suffering. And that suffering was an aspect of the life of Jesus from the very beginning. Paul hints at that in the the common Christie passage in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Uh, and, And then he goes on to say, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 8. And the Greek there is suggestive of the fact that he humbled himself by becoming obedient right up to the point of death. He's not saying that the point of death was his act of obedience, but that this whole life was an act of obedience. And, and in a sense, suffering marked the entirety then of the life of Jesus. Now, the church, uh, in its wisdom, has, uh, and I mean the Reformed church in its wisdom, uh, and I mean the Presbyterian and Westminster Confession in its wisdom, has divided the sufferings of Jesus into two parts, two aspects, if you like. Something called the active suffering of Jesus or the active obedience of Jesus and something called the passive suffering or the passive obedience of Jesus. And uh, there are some, in fact, there are some significant problems with, with that language. The idea is fine. But the language of active suffering and passive suffering is, is actually somewhat of a misnomer because even in Jesus' death, 
He is not passive. Remember, he would say things like, no one can take my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. Remember the last words of Jesus on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's not passive. He, he dies of his own volition. He dies actively. It was an act of obedience on the part of Jesus that he gave up the ghost. Now, I have some definitions uh, there of active and passive uh, obedience. Uh, one from Louis Burkhoff, Systematic Theology, which many of you have, I know, on your bedside cabinet. Uh, and other, another uh, lengthier definition by John Murray in Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I won't read those uh, out now. Let me just say that what is usually meant by active and passive here is is the active is the, is the whole life of Jesus that involved his obedience but would, would involve his suffering and the passive side of it is his crucifixion uh, on, on the cross. And uh, I'm not, I, I don't think the language is, is, is good. I, I think the use of the word passive is more unhelpful than it is, than it is helpful. But you do, you do, well you don't have to, but I'm telling you that it exists just in case you find it somewhere and are wondering what's this talk about active and, and passive uh, obedience. Um, what kind of suffering, and I want to explore, uh, if I may reverently do so, what kind of sufferings did Jesus know? And I want to, I want to parcel it out uh, for the sake of, of trying to understand it, I'm going I'm to separate out various aspects of the suffering of Jesus, beginning with what I want to call the social aspect of Jesus' suffering. Uh, and it reaches its culmination or its high point, its nemesis, if you like, in the description in Mark 15, uh, sometimes uh, referred to as the chorus of derision, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. That's, that's the kind of end point here where, where, where uh, society, where the government, if you like, where the ruling forces have turned against him, but also the religious world has turned against him, and eventually Mark will describe how even the disciples will forsake him and, and flee, and he is left alone uh, on, on the cross. Now, uh, let's pull back a little from that, that Jesus was a social being. I mean, there's no escaping it. There's no, there's no avoiding the fact that Jesus was a social being. He loved people. He loved to be among people. Uh, we were looking together, uh, most of us, I guess, on Sunday morning at one of the first things that Jesus does in his public ministry is to call disciples to follow him. Uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John in the passage in Mark 1 that some of us were looking at on uh, Sunday morning, for example. And then later in Mark's gospel in chapter 3, uh, because I think there were multiple callings, uh, Jesus calls the 12 to be with him on a, on a full-time basis. And Mark uh, puts it in a very interesting way. He says that he called the 12 so that they might be with him, Mark 3.14. That's a very interesting statement. That the reason, the, the chief and paramount reason why he called the twelve was in order that they might be with him. Suggesting that Jesus, whilst there is a uniqueness to the work of Jesus, and at the end of the day he only can do the work of the, of the Redeemer, he... There is another sense in which he does not do this work alone. He doesn't do this work as someone who is solitary. He doesn't come to put his imprimatur on, on what's the word for somebody who retreats from society and a hermit or 
A recluse, thank you. The drugs have kicked in. Um, the, the, you know, Jesus doesn't come to say that the, the, the norm for the spiritual life is to be a recluse, is to, is to ab- abandon everything and everyone and just go off into the desert. Um, but, but rather to be with people. Uh, he was a social being. Um, he loved people and, and was loved in turn by people. And yet he comes and suffers rejection. When Peter, one of his closest disciples, when Peter denies him and uh, Mark describes the incident and tells us that, that uh, Jesus was looking at Peter as though, as though the implication is that there was eye contact. When, when Peter denied him, Jesus was actually looking right at him from the other side of the courtyard of the high priest. And, uh, you know, when a good friend, when your best friend, perhaps, lets you down and turns against you and, and, and says something about you and misrepresents you in some way, um, uh, he's rejected by his family, his, his brothers and sisters. Uh, it's, it's a while before James, his brother, becomes a disciple of Jesus. There's a, there's a moment in which his family uh, are, are not with him in this. And, and so you've got this, this social suffering that reaches its climactic point uh, at Calvary when the scribes and the chief priests and the elders and the Jews uh, in Jerusalem and the Roman uh, empire and everyone else has rejected him. Uh, the, the social uh, suffering. Uh, there are folks who are lonely uh, for a whole variety of reasons, and and some due to their personality, and 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 sometimes due to factors completely outside of themselves, and they are lonely. And. Uh, they feel the need and miss the companionship of others and friends. And uh, Jesus is a social being here, but he, he also is rejected. He knows what it is to be alone, to be devoid of the companionship of another. Um, I, I could go on on that, but I, I, I need to move on. Uh, the social suffering of Jesus. Then, uh, secondly, the physical uh, suffering of Jesus. And that's usually what we think about more than anything else when we think about the sufferings of Jesus, the the physical aspect of his suffering. Uh, Reaching again its climax uh, uh, in, in those final hours uh, the, the, the flogging, and I, wanted, I want to mention that uh, partly because uh, th- there is something, uh, th- there is an issue here f- for us as we, as we read the Bible uh, that Mark and Matthew describe a, a flogging that comes after Pilate has uh, delivered the capital sentence, but John in the first verse of chapter 19, John talks about a flogging that takes place before Pilate has delivered that sentence. So you've got a flogging before and a flogging afterwards. And this is one of these issues in harmonization in the Gospels. And uh, conservatives uh, like ourselves have concluded that there are actually two floggings of Jesus. There were three different types of flogging uh, in the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, one was uh, fusticatio, uh, which was a kind of flogging uh, that hooligans, you know, if 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 some if someone uh, you know behaved badly at a social event, I mean, they they could be flogged uh, and they would re- receive what was called fustic- fusticatio. Uh, then there was a second kind of flogging, uh, f- uh, flagellatio, 
uh, which, was, which was a more brutal form of flogging, and it was generally delivered to those who were criminals. And then there was a third kind of flogging, uh, verberatio, which was often a flogging that could kill you, uh, but, but o- almost always was a flogging that led to crucifixion. And the whole point of it was to so weaken the body that the crucifixion would be all the more painful because of an inability to, to do certain things physically to relieve uh, the bod- bodily posture in, in, uh, in crucifixion. And it is, uh, it is widely believed by conservatives that Mark and Matthew are describing uh, the first kind and that John is describing the second kind and, and uh, that in all probability um, um, uh, I mean forgive me Mark and Matthew are describing the second kind of, of flogging and that John is describing the third kind of flogging uh, so, so, so this, is a, this is something that Jesus experienced twice in other words on that evening now you may have seen uh, the movie by that crazy guy, what's his name? Mel, Mel Gibson and the Passion. And, and again, forgive me if I tread on Second Commandment issues here, but, but if, you've seen, if you've seen the Passion, I've only seen it one time and I, I just could, I've just never been able to bring myself to watch it the second time. Um, but what I remember actually is not the crucifixion scene, what I remember is the flogging scene. Uh, I, I, I can't bring many other parts of the movie to my mind at the minute, uh, uh, but I can, bring, I can actually bring that flogging scene to my mind. I can see it. It's, it was visually horrific. Uh, and I have no reason to believe that it was overdone uh, for graphic purposes uh, or anything of the kind. I think it was, it was what it was, and that, and that the the brutality of that, that often uh, using, using cords into which were tied bits of bone and bits of uh, metal uh, to, to, to lacerate the back and, and often organs, kidneys would be exposed and, and folk were known to die from that physical part uh, of the suffering alone. So there's that and then and then there's uh, crucifixion, and there's a question here as to how much emphasis you know, we should place on trying to describe the crucifixion. It, it's interesting from the point of view of the Gospels, or, or for that matter from the point of view of the New Testament letters, that there's no attempt to describe crucifixion. You know, we, we, we want to describe it in terms of in terms of the, the, the beam that would have been, uh, would have been a, across the, the, the back that, that, that Jesus would have carried, the petubulum, as it was called, and, and then the upright was already in the ground, and that beam, uh, when he finally arrived at the site, he would be laying down, and, and his hands would be nailed to that beam, and then the beam would be hoisted up onto the upright uh, pole, and then his feet would be tied to the, to the pole. And on that pole, uh, and it would be done specifically for the height of the one being crucified. So this was something that was done usually after the person had been, had been hoisted up. Uh, they, would, they would fasten a piece of wood to the pole so that you could kind of, sort of, not sit on it so much, but at least get some grip to be able to... to uh, to, to pull yourself up in some way, either, either in some instances with your, by pushing with your feet or, or as in crucifixion, uh, th- th- that you sort of sit on it. And, and the whole point about crucifixion was that you would asphyxiate. You, couldn't, you didn't have the strength to, to do this motion, to, to, to inhale uh, air into your lungs. And the, the doctors here uh, will tell you, um, that Jesus would die not so much of asphyxiation, which in itself is a horrible way to die, but more like drowning because of the liquid, the fluids, and the doctors can tell you what's happening here, um, that, that would fill the lungs 
uh, and, and hasten that death. And it's part of what John, I think, is alluding to when, when the spear is thrust into his side and out comes blood and water, which for John has theological significance, but, but it also, of course, has, has medical significance. The, the fact is that all of the readers of the New Testament... The Gospels being written, of course, after the fact, uh, 20, 30 years later, that audience were very familiar with crucifixion. They didn't need somebody to describe, let me tell you what a crucifixion looks like, right? So all the readers of the New Testament Gospels and Epistles already understand, no matter where in the empire they are, they would, they would perfectly understand what a crucifixion is. They, they don't need to just, but, you know, we don't, so... So we, we do need to do some, some, uh, some extra work here to try and, and understand the sheer brutality of this form of death. And at his death, then, he experiences the separation of body and soul. Uh, Jesus, as we've already seen in the previous semester, has a human body, but he also has a human soul or a human spirit and at death these two are separated which means of course from another point of view that the second person of the trinity has a divine nature but he's also in union with a physical body that is actually a corpse and and the sheer the sheer profundity and and anomaly of that Um, he died relatively quickly You know, the sufferings of Jesus are not prolonged unnecessarily, if I can put it that way. I mean, as crucifixions went, Jesus' crucifixion was relatively short. When they went to break his legs, and and the point of breaking the legs was to disable them from doing this motion to inhale, and and therefore they they would die very quickly after breaking their legs but they discovered that Jesus was already dead now perhaps part of the double flagellation was in order to ensure on the part of the Jews um, that Jesus' death would be relatively quick because of the whole problem of the Sabbath that his body would have to be taken down uh, before the Sabbath so so there was was that political dimension uh, to it but there's also, I think, a divine aspect here, that the sufferings of Jesus seem, seem, seem to abate at the point of crucifixion. And then when he gets buried, he's buried not in a poor man's tomb, but in a rich man's tomb, as though the sufferings have now ended. And, and that the Father is hastening, as it were, to receive him uh, again. And then uh, what we can call emotional, psychological, and, and spiritual, and demonic um, sufferings. Beginning, of course, right at the beginning of his ministry in the temptation narratives when the spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then, uh, and then the statement uh, when Judas is betraying him uh, in which he speaks, this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, there's more to Judas's Judas' betrayal than Judas. There is, there, there is a demonic power at work. The forces of uh, darkness are at work here. And then the apex of that in the cry of dereliction uh, on the cross from Psalm 22. Now, Dr. Davis is going to be preaching on Psalm 22 on Sunday evening, so it's, it'll be interesting to see... Uh, that, that text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, expounded from the context of the 22nd Psalm. Uh, I want to think of it from the other end, and, and uh, I, ho- I'm, I hope I'm not stealing any of his thunder, probably not. Uh, he, he thinks in a very different way to me. But, but, um, but it will be fascinating, I think, for us this week, Uh, to think of it not just from the point of view of Jesus' words on the gospel but also from what will be a very fine exposition of the psalm itself uh, on uh, Sunday uh, evening. And if uh, there are folks listening 
to this recording, we're not in this building tonight, uh, that you should track down that sermon on Psalm 22, which hasn't been preached yet, but uh, uh, coming this uh, Sunday evening. But uh, I thought that was a wonderful providential tie-in with what we're thinking about here this evening. Now, uh, this cry of dereliction, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there are there are, there are many aspects of it that we need to uh, think through. Uh, one, and I'm, I'm only going to mention it and not do much with it for now, uh, and we may come back to it at some other date, but that's the whole descent into hell clause in the Apostles' Creed, and, and some Christians uh, have difficulty with that descent into hell clause. Uh, and... Uh, John Calvin, for example, interpreted the, the, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as the descent into hell. That on the cross, Jesus experiences what hell is. I mean, what is hell? Hell is being abandoned by God. What is the prevailing understanding of hell in the Bible? And that is the notion that God is against you. And, and here... Jesus is crying not what he normally did when he addressed uh, God by calling him Abba, my father, my father, but my God. As though he is no longer conscious of being one who is in a position of sonship to his heavenly father, but he's he's only conscious of being a creature before a God who has abandoned him. And, and that's very telling. Now there is, a, there is I think, a, a backward look at this cry of dereliction by Paul in Galatians 3.13 when he says that Christ was made a curse for us. In other words, here's Paul thinking about the cross and he's saying what happened on the cross is that Jesus was made a curse for us. And I think he's thinking of that particular cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because, because as a cursed thing, God could no longer draw near to him. He, he could only repel uh, from him. Or Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin for us. So at, at that moment, at that moment, Jesus is reckoned to be a sinner. And, and, and we need to be careful in, in the language we're using here, but at that point, the cry of Jesus is as though he is a sinner in the hands of an angry God. God has abandoned him. God has forsaken him. God cannot look upon him. God cannot speak to him. It's, it's a question. Why have you forsaken me? It's, it's, it's interrogation from one point of view. I mean, the question is sometimes asked, is, is the statement from Psalm 22 an, a question or is it a cry of pain? And the answer is, I think it's both. There's a question here, but it's a question that is unanswered. God doesn't speak to him. You know, like at the baptism, you are my son and I love you. Like at the transfiguration, you are my son and I love you. And here, why have you forsaken me? And there is silence. There is no word that speaks from heaven. Now theologically, uh, we, need to, uh, we need to think of this theologically. So let me, let me elaborate some things here. That although, although Jesus here is abandoned... The unity of the Godhead was not broken. Now when we think of Jesus, we think of him in hypostatic union. So we think of him as both having a divine nature and a human nature. And the divine nature of Jesus is not abandoned. It cannot be. There can't be a fracture within the Godhead itself. So however we understand this in terms of the union of the divine and human natures in the one person of Jesus... The, the, the unity of the Godhead is not broken. And yet, now try and, try and go with me here. And yet, Samuel Rutherford in one of his communion sermons says, when, 
when Jesus was crucified and he cries this dereliction, the lights seem to go out. And Jerusalem is in darkness. As, as, though, as though the power that is upholding the universe is, is, is going out. As though. Now, in actual fact, Jesus, in his divine nature, never ever stops or abdicates his, his role as the one who upholds the universe. That, that's the anomaly at the same time that, that in his human nature he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his divine nature he's holding up the universe and keeping the universe going. But, but visually, I mean, as though, as though at the very heart of the Godhead... The lights seem to be going out. Now, I've, I've gone into rhetoric now more than theology in, in saying that. Uh, then the father doesn't cease to love him. However we understand this cry, it, it doesn't mean that the father doesn't love him anymore. Actually, at no point was Jesus more lovable to the father than at this point. And if, if we think we have a tension here because of the unique status of Jesus. He has a divine and a human nature. The divine nature is upholding the universe and the human nature is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, there is also tension here in the father who loves his son and could never stop ceasing to love his son and yet forsakes his son at the same time. And so the father doesn't cease to uphold his son. So these are, these are sort of theological statements. They're like boundary markers that we kind of cross. Um, let's, let's move down all the way to, um, to the very final thing I say there, and it's number nine in, in the Roman numeral. He viewed himself as a sinner. Because that's how Paul will understand, I think, this cry of dereliction. He was made sin for us. Because what does sin deserve? Sin deserves the forsakenness of God. Where God doesn't draw near, where there's no fellowship, where there's no communion, there's no assurance. So, although, although at this stage all we are doing is, is looking at the facts here. There, there is a fact. He, he was crucified. There is a fact. He cried out, citing Psalm 22, that God had forsaken him. That's the fact. And we're trying to, we're trying to understand what does that mean. Right? And, 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 and we're trying to build here a theology of the sufferings of, of Christ. So let's, let's, let's start doing that by saying that the sufferings of Jesus were penal. Meaning, they were a penalty. Jesus dies. Death is the wages of sin. So the fact that Jesus dies means he's receiving the penalty for sin. Now this is utterly anomalous. For a variety of reasons, this is, this is the most anomalous thing in the history of the entire universe. That here you have someone who is sinless. Here we have one who has never sinned and yet he's receiving the penalty for sin in death. Why? And I think you've heard me say asked this question before but I, I'm going to keep on asking it because there are only two answers one is that there is no justice in the world you, you can live a perfect life you can be absolutely sinless and you can still re receive the penalty for sin so there's no justice God isn't just so, so suck it up, take a number do the Epicurean thing, let us eat, drink, and, uh, because tomorrow we die. Because there is no justice in the world. Or, you can say, at the point at which Jesus died, it was the just thing. 
It was the right thing. It was the only thing that could occur. Because at the point at which he died, he was, in all intents and purposes, a sinner. And the just wrath of God came down upon him. Now the question we have to answer is, how would Jesus be reckoned a sinner? That's the question. Because the facts say he died the death of a sinner. We're not up at stage 5, 6, and 7 in interpreting the cross. We're at at level 1 here. Why did he die at all? And and the only answer that 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 can be a biblical answer is that death, I mean, unless you're in another worldview, but within a Christian worldview, death is the wages of sin. So the fact that Jesus died, he died as a penalty for sin. Now, how could that be? If he is without sin. What time am I supposed to finish? No? Two minutes. Here's one more thought. That's anomalous enough. But who killed him? Who put him to death? The Romans? The Jews? Judas, Pilate, who put him to death? The Father did. God did. At least that's Paul's interpretation of it. He did not spare him, but freely delivered him up for us all. Now that's the anomaly of the, of the cross. Foolishness to the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the Greeks. Why did Jesus die? Well, uh, there are lots of answers here to this question. Why did Jesus die? And we're going to look at these uh, one by one in the coming weeks together. Let's, let's pray and we're going to segue into our prayer time and the others are going to come and join us but let's uh, let's uh, let's pray together father we we thank you as we stand in awe of the anomaly of the cross that he was put to death who knew no sin and that we understand that it was for us and in our room and in our stead that there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin he only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in so grant us now your blessing and we pray as we think about these things what wondrous love is this for Jesus sake Amen